Before we go on to the interview, we at the IPS project are delighted to present the IPS t-shirts, t-shirts that change the world. Not only does each t-shirt design tell a story and carry a message of light waiting to be spread in your life and to those around you, but with each purchase, you also get to choose where a part of your money will go by choosing the good cause you would like to support. By buying one of these t-shirts, you can support support causes varying from a focus on the environment to animals to campaigning for those struggling with mental health issues, suicidal thoughts, loneliness and diseases such as cancer. For further information about the IPS t-shirts and the good causes you can support, simply go to theipsproject.com slash shirts or check the description of this episode to find a link and take a look at this stunning t-shirts that can change the world. Having said that, let us now go on to the interview. So if you look at the, the patterns of eating disorders as coping gone wrong, right? If you look at the patterns of eating disorders as symptoms of a problem, then you start to look at it a little differently. You step back and you take this perspective. Like, why might it make sense that a person's doing this? Because that's, I think, what I saw in myself and my friends. And, you know, of course, it took me years later to understand myself. But looking at my friends, I could look at them with compassion and go, oh, yeah, that does make sense. Like, this person was treated horribly. They did have trauma, you know? But when we look at ourselves, we're like, my suffering was never bad enough. I don't make sense. I am broken. I am wrong. Right? And so it's been amazing to be able to be there for other people and to help them take a new lens on themselves to be able to see themselves the way they would see another person. This is episode 031 with Ashley McCann. Welcome everyone to another episode here on the IPS podcast. Thank you for tuning in and uh, for joining me once again. Or if you're a new listener, well, a warm welcome. I'm glad you're checking out the podcast. As you may or may not know, our aim at the IPS project is to be an educational platform on life that provides information about topics we learn little to nothing about growing up, like relationships, the mind, the body and brain and mental health. There are so many important topics we just do not know enough about, just like the one we are going to talk and uh, learn more about here in this interview, namely eating disorders. Now, for this interview, we invited Ashley McCann, a US-based trauma and eating disorder specialist. While searching for a fitting guest, I found Ashley by watching the Vice documentary she appeared in, called I've Only Eaten Mac and Cheese for the Past 17 Years, here is why, which I, by the way, can highly recommend anyone to check out. And uh, you can find it in the show notes of this episode. Either way, she struck me as the perfect guest to invite here on the IPS podcast, as she's not only a licensed psychotherapist specializing in eating disorders, but also a trauma therapist who often works through the lens of trauma when helping someone with an eating disorder, since eating disorders and trauma often go hand in hand. Ashley just did a terrific job in his interview providing clear answers and insights into how and why eating disorders develop, the variety of eating disorders and how to be there for yourself if you're struggling with one or for someone else. She also shared her personal story, the correlation between trauma and eating disorders and just so much more. For anyone who thinks or knows they're struggling with an eating disorder as well as for those looking to help someone, this interview will answer many of the questions you might have about this topic and provide practical tips and pieces of advice for both those struggling and those trying to help someone. Now, as always, you can find any resources that were mentioned in the interview, like book recommendations, and of course, ways to connect with Ashley in the show notes of this episode located in the description or by going directly to ipsproject.blog and search for Ashley. Lastly, I just want to say, and yes, I've said this before in other episodes, however, each time I do sincerely mean it, I deeply appreciate it that you're here and are taking the time to uh, be there for yourself and others by learning more about this topic. With that, please enjoy this interview with trauma and eating disorder specialist, Ashley McCann. 
Ashley, a warm welcome here to the IPS podcast. It's so good to finally talk to you. Yeah, yes. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. Um, so I've been wanting to talk about eating disorders for a long time now. So I'm really excited to finally have the chance to talk with someone, an expert on this topic. And when I was preparing for this interview, um, I was having some trouble to, to exactly know where to start because it's such a big mm -hmm. topic. Yeah. Uh, so I thought the best way to sort of start was to gradually, you know, build the understanding of eating disorders up and then move to more complex questions. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So I first thought to kind of start talking about the three most common eating disorders, anorexia, yeah. bulimia, and binge eating. And mm -hmm. to just get a bit of a better understanding about them. So, yeah. before, and now we move yeah. to some other questions, right? It's interesting because even as you, you know, open in this way, one of the things that immediately came to mind is that people often struggle with the idea that it's not bad enough. What they're struggling with mm. might not be enough to qualify as an eating disorder. So I'd say like the fourth category is the patterns in our life that might not fall into all of the criteria for diagnoses and mm -hmm. are still enough and matter. And you don't have to be sick and you don't have to require treatment for everything that we talk about today to still apply to you. Um, when we're looking at eating disorders in general, one of the things that they have in common is this desire for the body to change. So whether it's anorexia, bulimia, or binge eating disorder, a struggle with body image is one of the primary components. So when we're looking at the differences between them and anorexia, someone is um, going to be restricting their intake. They might be um, using behaviors that you'll see similarly in bulimia, where we might think of bulimia as uh, purging or throwing up food, but there are other forms of purging. So we might see people using laxatives or overexercising as well. So you're going to see crossover between a lot of eating disorder patterns. So similarly, someone with bulimia might be binging and purging. The person with the binge eating disorder might not have those compensatory behaviors, the, the purging. So they are binging and not compensating. Someone who is struggling with binging, um, you know, whether it is in relation to bulimia or on its own, um, might have questions around what makes a binge a binge. That's something that I find a lot of people have a lot of question marks around. And so talking about this today, I hope helps someone out there understand what it's what their experience is like. Um, and again, if you are overeating and you're feeling out of control, out of control and struggling, that's enough for it to matter. If it matters to you, it matters. Something that might be helpful for people to understand about binging is that it can become a dissociative process. And so dissociation falls on a spectrum. Dissociation is that thing that happens when we're sitting at work or in school and we're daydreaming. We're not really present in the moment. Our mind is somewhere else. And uh, it happens a lot when we drive from point A to point B and we get somewhere and we go, how did I get here? I don't even remember driving here, but it was such a familiar drive. We did it on autopilot and our mind truly could have been somewhere else. So those are both forms of dissociation. The dissociation that happens during a binge will look like um, someone almost, it can feel almost like blacking out, like you don't even remember doing it. Mm -hmm. You might feel like you're watching yourself do it, but that you don't have the ability to stop. Um, and so that, that dissociation is something that shows up, not just with binge behaviors, as I described with those other examples, but it's something that a lot of people in general struggle with. So whether or not eating disorder is, um, something that you're concerned about, it can be interesting to just have that awareness of what the dissociation is. Um, so yeah, tell me, what do you think? would help people understand better these three eating disorders? What questions did you have? Yeah, so if we would just like sort of start with anorexia, could you like give sort of a, a, a description like what it is and what is it not? So rather than go the DSM route where you would see a list of criteria, I would say let's look at a day in the life of someone with anorexia. Yeah. 
your mind would be preoccupied with what you're going to eat or not eat, how many calories you're going to take in or not take in. It might look like um, how many times you're going to weigh yourself or not weigh yourself within a day. From the moment that you wake up, as you move through your day, the distraction and preoccupation dominate your mind. This is a person who is likely to be underweight. Um, they're not taking in enough calories to sustain their weight. And so they have typically continual weight loss. Yeah. Um, you know, when it gets severe, you might start to see this person develop lanugo. So it's this almost like a furry, like more hair growth on your body. You might have hair loss, wow. uh, cold all the time. Um, so as this person moves to their day and their life, it's the, the focus on food is dominant. And there are a lot of reasons that someone might fall into those patterns. So if you're young and something in your life is out of control, finding focus and something that you can control, cutting your food into tiny pieces, mm. paying so much attention to the food might have helped you shut out the world around you or feel like you could contain something, something in your life when other right. things were out of control. And I use that example because I think that people with anorexia get a bad rap for trying to control. And it's as if it's a, it's a negative quality, hmm. but that desire to feel like you have control is a kind of a basic human need, you know, and most people, you know, this doesn't mean this develops out of childhood. This could develop later in life. It could happen when we're adolescents. Um, so now if you look at the day in the life of someone with bulimia, not very different. You're mm -hmm. going to wake up and you're going to be thinking potentially about um, maybe like what you feel shame for eating the day before mm -hmm. or the shame that you feel for purging or the, the negative thoughts that you have about yourself for this cycle of behaviors. Because people who struggle with bulimia, they don't want to be struggling with bulimia, sure. right? That's the other thing that I think people don't understand that, you know, you'll see a lot of people struggling with anorexia feel like they don't want to let go of it. It's because it feels like their life relies on it. And we'll get more into that later. Someone who's struggling with bulimia, I, I see a lot more inner conflict. They might want to restrict only. And then they get into the self-hatred pattern because of the eating that happens. But what's happening is that this person is highly likely to be restricting their intake and that that's increasing the likelihood of overeating or binging. Because when we put, when we put our body in a restrictive state and we put our mind in a restrictive state, mm -hmm. we say, you can't have, you can't have, you can't have. What do we think about when we're saying, don't think about food, food. Sure. When we're saying, don't think about eating. What do you think? about eating, yeah. right? And so they're in this spin cycle of telling themselves no and then feeling like there is something wrong with them for feeling out of control. And they stay in that spin cycle, they wake up the next morning and instead of having a fresh start, they're looking back on the day before and it's propelling them right back into the cycle. Mm -hmm. um, and for someone who is um, struggling with bulimia, that, that cycle might happen multiple times within a day or once a day, um, but several times a week, at least. And if we would talk to about binge eating, like could you give a, a short like description about that? There is a lot of preoccupation with thoughts about food. Uh -huh. Similar struggle with shame or negative self-beliefs related to their relationship with food. So really feeling like they should be in control. In this group of people, we tend to see a history of dieting. And this is what we know about dieting. They fail, diets fail. And people who diet within a year don't just gain the weight back. Mm. Research is showing that they're gaining the weight plus 25%. Now, what happens to someone when they fail a diet isn't that they go, that diet doesn't work for people. They go, I failed, I'm yeah. a failure. And when we start to believe, uh, develop beliefs like these, we're going to be more likely to have really low self-esteem, low self-confidence, low belief in ourselves. There's also a lot of belief out there. I think that all of this, the change and you know, when people are looking at trying to lose weight when they find themselves feeling unhealthy mm -hmm. is that they believe that it comes from motivation. Mm -hmm. And how are you going to motivate when your relationship with yourself is suffering so much, right? And so they get caught in a different kind of spin cycle. For people with um, binge eating disorder, likely food in some way, shape or form is a form of coping self-soothing, 
where love has been bound in their life, which might be a really positive thing if you look back on childhood. You know, is that what their grandmother gave them to show them love? Um, it might be the way in which that person has coped when they have felt sad, lonely, out of control, right? Um, and so it's a bit of a different spin cycle, mm -hmm. but it's the same story. Maybe waking up in the morning and feeling motivated to do it differently. But as the day wears on, the energy of our prefrontal cortex also wears down. Yeah. So we wake up with these intentions to do it differently, perhaps some days, right? But as the day wears on, and you've probably seen this in your life, and I'm sure the listeners have seen this in their own, our best set intentions are so hard to execute by the end of the day. And Definitely. one of the patterns that I see for people who struggle with binge eating in any way, shape or form is that it's more likely to happen at the end of the day. And that's when we aren't able to rely on our prefrontal cortex to get us through those tough decisions, to get us through the new change or new pattern or behavior. And instead we end up relying on those rope patterns. It's like our mind and body, and they, this is not like this, our mind and body are literally firing for us to do what we've always done when we feel a certain way, right? That what fires together, wires together. So yeah. if I have had a pattern of repeating this behavior at the same time every day, and this might go for, you know, the anorexic weighing or the overeating or binging that occurs with um, bulimia or binge eating disorder, mm -hmm. my mind is going to fire at 6 p.m. for me to do that thing. I've always done at 6 p.m. And so we're trying to work against that. And it's a very, very difficult thing to overcome on your own. And most people believe that they should be able to. Mm. And yet that that rarely works. So this were like, uh, I think that's a good start where we got some good understanding about those three most common yeah. eating disorders. Uh, but I'm wondering like, is there, cause there's so many eating disorders, right? But is yeah. there another eating disorder out there that you feel should get more attention that isn't get mm -hmm. enough, uh, getting enough attention? <laughs> a very different end of the spectrum. Um, we have ARFID, so avoidant restrictive food intake mm. disorder. So in the Vice documentary that you were in, yeah. that was about that eating disorder, yeah. right? Yeah. And I have to say that, you know, even going through my own training early on, I did not learn about this. This is newer. Uh, diagnoses have changed over time. So um, this is something that it's unlike what we were looking at with the three that we were just discussing, because uh -huh. it does not have that same desire to change the body due to the body image disturbance. Yeah. Someone with uh, ARFID, we're just gonna abbreviate it now <laughs> because it's a mouthful. Someone who's struggling with ARFID is going to struggle for a very different reason. And um, and even within the diagnoses, there's such variation. Now, someone who is avoiding or restricting their intake is not doing so for the same reasons as the person who is anorexic. These people are more likely to have had a food-related trauma Mm. or very heightened sensitivity to textures, tastes, the sensory experience for them makes it um, fearful to eat a lot of foods. There tends to be a, a fear of choking that prevents people from eating. The reason that I think that it's important for people to know that this exists is that a lot of people have been out there living their lives thinking that there is something wrong with them and that mm. they are picky eaters, which as a child, can fly, but as an adult, you feel like there is something truly wrong with you because it starts to limit you from being able to go on dates, go out to dinner with your friends, to, to have these, you know, in quotes, adult experiences, because what you might eat might be limited to less than five foods. Huh. So with an ARFA diagnosis, it is that narrow. Now, these people tend to then get judged right? Sure. You eat so narrowly. Yeah. What? Just try it. Just eat it. That's what they hear. And as a, a child, it might've been very forceful by their caretakers. Mm. So it's trauma, 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 right. because it's so overwhelming, such heightened anxiety around food that doesn't make sense to the people on the outside because they don't understand that internal experience and people don't have an awareness of this diagnosis. So I think it's just good to put it out there that yeah. this is a real thing and there is help and there are ways of changing and um, you can get past that overwhelm to get to a place where you can be more inclusive, hmm. which is true for all of the eating disorders. And right. 
I think that one of the other things that people have in common, regardless of, you know, any variation of disordered eating to diagnosable eating disorder is that lack of belief that your life can change, that you can do it, that you also could be happy if you did. You know, when we look at, as in that example I was giving of the person with anorexia who, who doesn't seem that they want to change, it's because they don't believe that life could be good on the other side without it. It's not that they don't want happiness. It's the belief that might still be so deeply embedded that without it, they can't be happy. Yeah. For a lot of us, one of the things I think we can relate to, regardless of having an eating disorder, is that we tend to put these things out there that if I weighed less, I'd be happier. If I made more money, I'd be happier. If I had a bigger house or if I had a boat, if I lived somewhere else. So we, we throw these circumstances on ourselves, these expectations that if I get there, then I'll be happy. And I wonder if we all just took a moment to think about this. Was there anything that we thought when we got there that we would be happy? I mean, if we look back to when we were kids and we think about what we do and have now, our kid self would be like, wow, for, for most of us, if we're lucky, if we have that level of privilege, but we might be sitting here thinking in 10 years, I'll be happy. And so yeah. that's kind of what it's like for someone with an eating disorder. It's this thought that if I can just yeah, change my body, or, if I can just yeah. change my weight, yeah. I will be not just happy. I will feel like I'm enough, that I have worth, I have yeah. value, that I am acceptable, that I belong, that I am, you know, just going to feel like the way I imagine other people feel in their lives. Mm. And yeah, we're all kind of walking around suffering in our own way, right? Yeah. <laughs> Life's definitely not easy for no one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 So the tricky thing about like many eating disorders, um, like bulimia, binge eating, but also anorexia, is that you don't always know that someone is struggling with one. And I mean, you and you also have the opposite, actually, that someone might just have a good metabolism and sport lots, and people yeah. might wonder, like, do you eat enough, or is something, right. you know, going wrong in your life, or or are you struggling with an eating disorder? Yeah, and um, that other end of the spectrum, that people who are in larger bodies, there we have these cultural beliefs that they can't be healthy, and they can't. They could be healthier than that underweight person. Right. It's, isn't it so interesting? So yes, there's much that we might assume and there's a lot that we will miss because we can't see it. Yeah. So I'm just wondering if you could like, wh when are we truly talking about an eating disorder and when are we not talking about an eating disorder? Like what clearly defines that someone has an unhealthy relationship with food? You know, we could again go into the criteria, but I think that this might help more. If you are worrying about your relationship with food, that's your answer. If you're thinking about it, that's enough, right? This is something that oh, I think in your episode that you just had from the man from The Snaked Mind, uh, the Scott, Andy Grace. Scott Pinyard. Yes, yes. okay, yeah. so he similarly defined how do you know if you have a problem with alcohol? If you wonder if you have a problem with alcohol and you're thinking about how much to drink or not drink, it's the same, right? You know, so, and, and I say this again, not because the, the diagnostic criteria are not important. They're so valuable to so many people because they validate their experience. But if you're worrying about it, if you're thinking about it, if you're considering this, mm. get support. Yeah. It, you are right where you need to be to begin to change that and free your mind of it. So when I look for um, guests to interview on a certain topic, mm -hmm. I always look for people who have expertise, of course, in the topic. Mm -hmm. But I'm also very interested always in looking for someone who has also personal experience with it. And like to me, that's sort of the ultimate combination like of someone having the expertise and having the personal experience of truly understanding uh yeah. what it's like to go through it to me that's like the best way to really be there for someone and know yeah. what it's like and if i got my research correct when i was preparing for this interview i understood that you as well used to struggle with an eating disorder 
I've never had a diagnosable eating disorder. Um, mm -hmm. My struggle was definitely something that came of, you know, never feeling good in my body, never feeling good enough. Yeah. Uh, overeating at times, I tried purging and mm. went through periods of restriction. But again, never to the extent that I would have had a diagnosis. The thing that I think drew me to this was that there were people around me, all of these people who were so close to me, mm -hmm. who felt the same way, and yet they did develop eating disorders. And I was looking at our lives going, how is it that that affected them in this way and me so differently mm. when the way that we feel about ourselves is so similar? Or <laughs> I'd look at someone and go, but they have it all, you know, younger me, right? Mm -hmm. But they have it all. And like, you know, valedictorian and a boyfriend and everything that you could think that everybody wanted as a teenager, right? Or in college. And yet they were struggling. And right. it just made me want to get it. I really wanted to understand it beyond that. And what I came to see that we all have in common is that these underlying self-limiting beliefs were there for all of us, but sent us in different directions, sent us into different unhealthy coping strategies because we didn't know how to cope with how we were feeling about ourselves in our mm -hmm. lives. And so this has taken my work in the direction of trauma. You know, I, I had early childhood trauma and we all have these traumas large and small as we move through our lives and how those change us can determine the direction that we go in. So for a lot of people, that means going toward eating more food. For some people, it may mean eating less food. For others, drinking alcohol. For someone else, overworking, avoiding, detaching, shutting down, leaving school, overachieving in school. You know, it can look a million different ways. And so I went from being an intern and then an employee at a eating disorder treatment center where I was watching this common thread all of these people have trauma. But back then, we weren't talking about the correlation between trauma and eating disorders. I'm like, doesn't this explain why they're doing this? You know, we're just saying like, don't exercise, eat more, eat less, you know? I'm like, but what about all these underlying things that are leading these people to feel worthless in their lives? And so I went and I got trained in trauma healing methods. So first in hypnotherapy and then in eye movement desensitization reprocessing, which we call EMDR, um, because I saw that those things really were having an impact on whether or not someone could get better. If they kept believing, you know, much like you spoke about in your positive psychology podcast, if they continue to think a certain way and mm -hmm. feel a certain way about themselves, it was very hard for them to believe in the possibility of difference for them. If I don't think I'm good enough and I believe that the only way to feel good enough is to change my body, mm -hmm. well, I'm gonna do that, right? I need to get out from underneath that belief in order to be open to the possibility of something different for myself. And, and that's what the trauma healing does for people. It mm -hmm. looks at why are you doing this thing that you're doing? Because the eating disorder, it, it's the symptom. But like, do you feel like every trauma is related to the development of an eating disorder or no. every eating disorder is related to a, a trauma. I mean, in my experience, there's always been something that's been able to be identified. What will happen though, is people will go, well, I don't have any trauma, but trauma is relative. So while I might look at trauma as being, you know, someone going to war or someone being abused, the worst thing that has happened to me, and the worst thing that has happened to you is the worst thing that has happened in our life. And it could have a profound impact on us. Mm -hmm. So that might look like a parent's divorce, bullying in middle school, being put on a diet at a young age. Yeah. These things have profound effects on us. And it's enough to change the way that we feel yeah. in relation to the world. Right. Yeah. So and the way we behave. Yeah. So if you look at, the, the patterns of eating disorders as coping gone wrong, right? If you look at the patterns of eating disorders as symptoms of a problem, then you start to look at it a little differently. You step back and you take this perspective, like why might it make sense 
that a person's doing this. Because that's, I think, what I saw in myself and my friends. And, you know, of course, it took me years later to understand myself. But looking at my friends, I could look at them with compassion and go, oh, yeah, that does make sense. Like, hmm. this person was treated horribly. They did have trauma, you know? But when we look at ourselves, we're like, my suffering was never bad enough. I don't make sense. I am broken. I am wrong. Right? And so it's been amazing to be able to be there for other people and to help them take a new lens on themselves to be able to see themselves the way they would see another person. One of the most interesting things in that healing process is that when we look back on ourselves, even as children, mm -hmm. we look at ourselves almost as we look at ourselves now, like we should have known everything that we know now. Someone mm. will literally look at right. themselves at six and think mm -hmm. that they should have known everything that happened after. Yeah. But when we were six, we didn't know anything yeah. and we shouldn't have, and we weren't responsible for any of it. We were just kids. And so part of this work is actually, um, you know, much like um, shadow work, Jungian theory, like going back and looking at all of these different experiences to understand ourselves when we were young, because we, we have to do that to understand all that, that shadow stuff, the shadow stuff being the things that we don't like about ourselves. <laughs> and usually if you look at something you don't like about yourself, you can tie it back to where it began. Yeah. And how old were you then? And how much do you judge that teenager? That's a good place to start to understand what I'm talking about. If you think of yourself as a teenager making a choice you have judged yourself for, ooh, we're very harsh on our young selves. Yeah. But then if you look at another kid who's that age, you're like, oh, you should know nothing. <laughs> you did know nothing. <laughs> yeah, you true. were not the adult you believed uh, yourself to be. Yeah. You had no coping skills. <laughs> yeah, it's like giving advice, you know, like uh, you should try to give advice to yourself as you would give advice to a friend, right? Yeah. Otherwise, we're so harsh on ourselves. Mm -hmm. It's so crazy. Yeah, you know, and I actually was thinking about that as I was listening to your positive psychology podcast, because that is so much of the work And the book you recommended untethered soul is my favorite book mm. in the world, because it helps so many people understand what it's like to be in relation to their own thoughts. I believe that it was Michael Singer who gave the example of the bad roommate. Uh, it was him, yes. Okay, I think so, in the book, The Untethered Soul. Yeah, yes, yeah, yes, great yes. book. So yeah. when, you're, when you're thinking about this example, so you just imagine that if you had a bad roommate, a roommate who's just constantly spewing negative crap all the time, that's all they had to say, you'd go in your room and you'd shut the door, recognizing that you don't have to listen to it. In our own minds, we lack that awareness. And that's not because we aren't intelligent beings. It's that nobody's told us to recognize exactly. that we don't have to engage in our thoughts. Hmm. What I found is that it's like torture for these people. They feel like they are being berated constantly by their own thoughts. Those obsessive and compulsive thoughts about food and eating and their body and their size and the measuring what to eat, what not to eat. I ate too much. I'm not enough. Like it's, constant until you start to understand why it's there mm. and you're like oh okay there it is again i understand i i'm thinking about weighing myself because i think that it's the only way to stay safe right i think that if i gain weight i'll be fat what does fat mean fat oh that word that is like the word right but it, we think of it as a feeling is this like state of being, it represents a lot and it might represent something different to each of us. So for some, the idea of being fat means they're not enough. For some, it means they're a failure. For some, it means that they're disgusting or lazy. Um, so, you know, so what's under that? Okay, these fearful beliefs, fears for the future, fears that came from the past. And so, um, so yeah, there's, there's a lot of work that we do and, you know, changing the way that we see ourselves, changing the way that we're thinking about ourselves, changing the way we're engaging with our thoughts so that we can change the behaviors. I would like to move to a few practical questions on like the people listening who might recognize that they are struggling with an eating disorder. Mm -hmm. And then I also want to switch sides and talk to the people listening who want to help someone. Uh, so let's first start with the people listening who might recognize that they struggle with an eating disorder. So I can imagine it to be just extremely overwhelming when you realize that you might have an eating disorder or that yeah. you might struggle with one. 
from your like personal experience and like your professional experience, like what can you recommend as first good steps to those people? Yeah, a few things. So one, just talk to someone and know that in talking to someone, Mm -hmm. that could be all you do. You know, just having someone there to hold space, as long as you are safe. Now, if, if you're unsafe, we want to make sure that you're safe first, sure. meaning for some people, it, it might look like hospitalization, but if that scares you, start by just talking to someone. The thing that I would want people to know also is that in talking to someone and in going to treatment, even if that was necessary, mm-hmm. you are working in collaboration with people that are there to help you identify the path of least resistance for you that there will be a lot of fear that rises around letting go of these behaviors. What would happen if I stopped doing this? People, even people who purge, who don't want to purge, fear not purging because they'll gain weight and that fear of fat and what it's associated with, right? So there's a lot of fear and hesitation in actually allowing anyone in. Mm. So this is good for those people on the other side to hear too, that it's Mm. not that they don't want to change, but it's that inner conflict. There are different parts of these people at play. Their highest and wisest self, wants something different, the most fearful part of them will override that nine times out of 10. And so knowing that when you go into this process, you're going to identify what is hardest for you, scariest for you, as well as what feels most important to you, what feels most accessible to you as far as change. And it's the stepwise process that will unfold slowly over time. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's not an all or nothing process. You're going to start to build skills that will help you do the hard things because most of us did not learn any coping skills in our lives. If you had great parents, maybe you got lucky. If you had one awesome teacher, maybe you learned it there. But for most of us, we don't have these skills. So you're going into this to learn new ways of being so that it's less scary to change the way of being so that when you go to do that really hard thing, you've got something that's helping you feel equipped to do it. And then um, that there is a huge block around the fear of weight gain, which can be a part of the process because, you know, bodies get so out of sorts. Our metabolism might go into a hyperactive state or a hypoactive state. And um, to know that if you stay the path, it balances out. Yeah. That it is never the goal of anyone's team that they're working with in treatment and in healing to make you gain weight, to be overweight, to be unhealthy. And it's truly a fear that blocks people from getting help. That fear of fat is so overwhelming. And um, that, you know, for the people in the binge eating category, that fear of doing it without dieting is kind of like that too. It's like, I have to do it in an extreme way and I have to get there. And that, that lack of hope and faith and trust in eating in a normalized way, because we're so far from knowing what that might even look like. So getting that education around nutrition as well is life-changing. Most of us didn't get that either, right? So to begin, you know, reach out, reach out to a therapist and then look at working with a dietitian who's going to help, help you guide you down that road in a way that feels contained. So you don't have to do all the control yourself. Someone's there helping you, guiding you get in with your doctor, get some labs done, see where you're at to know if you are safe. All this information, all these people, they work for you. They're yeah. there to help get you where yeah. you want to go. Exactly. Um, if you are someone who was relating to the conversation around our beliefs of ourself, around trauma, see a therapist, find someone who does trauma work, start that journey. You will find so much freedom at the end if you can find the change in the way that you feel about yourself in this world, it will help you get to that place of possibility. Um, Because underneath all of these challenges is a desire to feel happy. That's literally why most people are doing it. They want to feel happy. They want to feel good. And, And that's what we want for you too. And so I hope that people reach out to get there. Yeah, and, and people who are like afraid to go to a therapist uh, to talk about this because they feel sh- ashamed or something, 
you should know that those people have likely seen this before and will totally oh, understand you, right? Yeah, yeah. Therapy is definitely not a place of judgment. No, you know, this yeah. is this, exactly. our job is to be there, to listen to it, to hear you, to support you, to yeah, see to you. Understand you. And yes, we have most of us heard and seen it all yeah. and not blinked an eye. Um, it's a safe space. It's a holding space. Um, and, and I hope that people do find it. You know, now we have access to methods of therapy that go online through text, through video. Um, there's so many options out there, which I'm really grateful for because I think that that is helping people kind of break down that fear. And I hope to see the stigma around therapy continue to shift and change. Yeah. This is a very practical question, but I mean, there's so many kind of kind of therapies out there. And you already mentioned like trauma, uh, like a trauma therapist, but is there on any other like specific kind of therapies that you would recommend to people struggling with an eater, eating disorder? Find someone who is an eating disorder specialist. Sure, yeah. You know, there are certifications. There's also people with just multitudes of years of experience. Um, but, but finding someone who really does know eating disorders is important. You know, much like seeing a doctor, they have different specializations because there is so much to know, right? That's why we see a psychiatrist. They specialize in the medication. Um, so find a specialist, start there. You might not relate to the need for trauma healing. So begin, begin with a therapist who knows eating disorders. Um, there are plenty of other um, modalities that I would recommend for building coping skills. Um, you know, people really benefit from dialectical behavior therapy when they feel like they don't have anything a leg to stand on. But I would say do that with your eating disorder specialist or in conjunction. There's lots of awesome groups out there. Again, online, virtual, self-paced. Um, yeah, I, I would say that those would be like the best places to begin. Just find a therapist. That's it. Yeah. Don't overcomplicate it. Begin. <laughs> yeah. I know that a very difficult thing for people struggling with an eating disorder is that uh, that they relapse often. Like, why does that happen so often? And what can you do about that? I think fear is the reason, you know, or something new happens in life and destabilizes. And so they slide back into the old coping. Uh -huh. um, I also think, as I said earlier, that if there is a part of us that is left without that healing experience, the likelihood of relapse is high. Mm. Because if you look at it, um, I could do the behavioral change, right? I might do great doing some of the behavioral change with a lot of support or going into treatment. The behavioral change is looking like, eating, you know, eating according to uh, a meal plan and getting out of restriction, overeating, binging. I might have um, a period of time where I've, I've gone without purging or over-exercising or using laxatives, right? So we might behaviorally make a change, but if underneath it, we still feel the same way. If underneath it, we still carry those self-limiting beliefs, I'm not good enough, I'm a failure. They're likely to get triggered again and again and again. And here's why. Not because it's true, but because simply that it exists in your mind as a neural pathway. When you have an experience that is difficult or painful or brings up a feeling like an embarrassment or shame, boom, more evidence for our mind, which is just holding this, this box in the back of our mind that's like, feel free to store things here. This strong neural pathway, because it's been repeated so long through your life, I am not good enough. In the recesses of our mind, often subconsciously, Right. So how, you know, how do you know if you're carrying these beliefs, if they're subconscious? Well, if you're self-sabotaging, if mm. you're maladaptively coping, mm -hmm. if you're limiting yourself, if you're not taking opportunities, if you don't believe you deserve. Um, so yeah, they'll, they'll get tipped off again. And that will definitely send someone into, or not definitely, but possibly send someone into relapse, but it's, it's highly likely that that person, if they still aren't feeling the way they want to feel in their life, you know, and for most of us, that's not perfectly happy all the time. We're just looking for a neutral baseline. You know, yeah. we just want to feel like we can cope. We want to feel like we have a place in this world. We want to feel good enough. Right. Um, so I, I do think that that is a big reason for relapse uh, among others. 
Do you feel like retreats and like um, online programs or like an online course is also like very helpful or effective? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, retreats are a very interesting experience and there are a lot of different variations of retreats. You know, one of the things that I offer now are EMDR only retreats and they're one-on-one. -on -one. And so we just, we spend four days doing deep intensive work, but the retreat in more of the traditional sense of being with a group of people that has this very, you know, for lack of a better word, magical effect for people where sure. it's this deep dive into connection, often with strangers. But the effect of being with people you don't know also can sometimes free you up to truly be yourself and be honest. Knowing there's a beginning yeah. and an end can give people this type of freedom and courage and bravery that they might lack otherwise and withhold and self-protect. Um, being in a new and a different place, getting out of those familiar and triggering environments, because our environments also trigger the, these patterns and behaviors can help us feel some freedom, some ease, the ability to do things a little differently. Um, so I, I really believe in the power of retreats. Now, is a retreat going to get someone beginning to end of an eating disorder? No. Is it going to likely help them develop new insights and understanding and connection mm -hmm. to help them feel like they're not alone. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, courses are fantastic because we all have so much that we can learn and someone might find something in a course that clicks for them and it helps them come out of one of the behaviors that's plagued them for so long, which is, you know, similar to the work that we do one-on-one -on -one. and in courses, like in the courses that I'm offering, mm -hmm. it's what I'm doing with people one-on-one. -on -one. Right. Right. It's, these are online. these building block skills yeah. that, you know, here's a practice, go observe this this week. When you observe this, try this skill, repeat, 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 repeat. Now you've built a skill. Now you have a new level of awareness. And now that, that trigger. So maybe it's um, an environmental trigger. Like you go in the kitchen, think about how many rote behaviors we all have when we walk into the kitchen. Have you ever found yourself opening your refrigerator and you're like, why am I even here? Yeah, right? I have we have guess. so many rote behaviors. In, yeah. in the, these are environmental triggers, right? Yeah. Our brain says when we're in the kitchen, open the fridge, hmm. open the cabinet. Why do we even walk into the kitchen? Well, because that's what I've done in a rote pattern. Hmm. As soon as I have a break, every break, I just walk in the kitchen. Oh, interesting. Now we have this awareness of this pattern. And when we have the awareness of it, we can feel that impulse and go, oh, I don't need to walk in the kitchen right now. Or I do, and it's lunch, and I know what I'm going to have <laughs> because yeah. maybe another skill that I'm building is planning or preparing meals. You know, so there's all these skills that can help us make movement. And I'd say like a course might be more appropriate if you don't relate to a diagnosis of an eating disorder, but you're struggling with certain patterns of behavior. That might be a great place to start. A course might also be a great um, practice in conjunction with therapy to, to keep yourself moving, to be doing that work in the spaces between your week to week appointments. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of value, I think, in both of those. Yeah. I mean, the path to healing is never just like one thing, right? Like it's right. many little things that yeah. help in the end. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So, if so we, as for, sorry. oh, we didn't answer, we didn't answer um, the question about like caregivers, loved ones, people exactly. who are concerned. Is that what That's you're what ask? I want to move actually to <laughs> like uh, the people now listening who, you know, might, well, who have someone in their life who might be struggling mm -hmm. with an eating disorder or they might, they think that someone is struggling with one. What is like the best way to to start that conversation? Like, yeah. let's say that you have your child and you think they're struggling with an eating disorder. Like, how do you approach them? How do you yeah. talk to them? And how do you just, yeah, how, how can you be there for yeah, them? Yeah, the, the approach with a child is much different than with an adult. So I'd say, uh, you know, first with an adult, a friend, a loved one, saying... I see this, how can I support you? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of fear, like we were talking about earlier about letting people in. Um, many people with eating disorders have had very difficult experiences with loved ones, either uh, making comments about their bodies, what they eat, trying to force change, yeah. trying to make the change happen for them. Um, and 
asking the person how you can support them is the best way to find out how. What one person is going to be comfortable with is going to be very different than the next. Um, what one person is going to allow is going to be very different than the next. Um, letting them know that you're there and that you care and that you will do what will help them and what they need is really important. And I know that for anyone who's out there who's struggling with someone with a severe eating disorder, the need and safety can change what that looks like. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it can feel like that's not enough. In reality, with an adult, it is only them who can change. Um, but but letting them know that you'll you'll go to the appointment with them, that that you'll hold their hand, that you're not judging that you will support is so valuable because it's really hard to have safe people when anyone who sees it can start to feel like a threat, right? Like everyone's threatening this way of being that I believe that I need to hold on to, to be okay. Um, you know, I hope that after listening to this, people have a slightly different understanding of what the experience is like, that it's not just about food. It's not just about behavioral change, but that it's about healing on a much broader scale. Um, and, and I hope that that helps people to, to see it through a different lens um, because, you know, just making someone eat, which is what often happens, doesn't actually help them change. And it can inhibit that person from accessing support. Um, so, Another tip I would say is avoid commenting on body, avoid commenting on the food in a way that isn't helpful because um, that can really be separating rather than connecting. When it comes to a child, I would say immediately, you know, to a doctor, get labs done, make sure that they're safe and stable um, and look into the Maudsley method which is you know, child-based eating disorder treatment. There's a lot more um, involvement of adults as there should be when we're talking about children. Um, and also just looking at them still through this lens, you know, is this because of a food-related fear, much like ARFID, or is this about how they feel about themselves already at a young age? Because we are seeing that shift younger and younger and younger. Kids are struggling with their body image. You mentioned that you shouldn't, you know, make comments about their bodies. Like that's a clear red flag, right? Yeah. To do. Mm -hmm. um, are there any other clear red flags that you definitely shouldn't do? Anything forceful, you know, around you have to eat like that, that struggle that we want to get in if someone is re refusing to eat. Um, and anything that's shaming, which I think is hard for a lot of people to have awareness of, um, but it can be very, I, I, how to describe this, that, hmm, how do you describe the shaming? What is it that gets internalized? It isn't necessarily our fault when we're making comments and someone else is personalizing them. So I'm having a hard time describing this. Um, yeah, I would say, I would say really just not making comments about body mm -hmm. and trying not to focus on food as the solution, but to mm -hmm. instead help the person connect to the awareness that this is beyond food and that you're there to support them in getting the help that they need. Most people, of course, when they see someone struggling, want to be there for them. Uh, but then you also have people who don't really you know, that are just confused about what's yeah. going on because they just don't understand like uh, what an eating disorder is or something. Oh, that, this is good because what you're talking about is that kind of what I, I was trying to speak to earlier mm. that was difficult to frame, but family members can get really frustrated, mm -hmm. angry, agitated. They want something good for the person who is struggling. They want better. They want to be able to help. Eating disorders can tear people apart though, because yeah. when they're not seeing you make the change, not seeing you take care of yourself, seeing you do harm, it can very much wear. And that is, that is a big concern that this is a behavior. This is not the person, mm -hmm. right? These actions, these patterns, this is still not who this person is. 
And so trying to stay mindful of that, you know, in those moments of anger and agitation, it's, oh, I, I hate that you're struggling with this, not directed at the person about who they are. And that, that's a really important thing to understand that I, I don't think that a lot of people have an awareness of, but it is much like working with children throwing tantrums in a store, you know, ignore the behavior, not the child, um, that these are people who are suffering, regardless of what it looks like on the outside, because it can look reticent, it can look um, like refusal, it can look like they don't care, that they don't want to, that they're rejecting you, and, and they might be. But that should also indicate to us the extent of the depth of their entrenchment and the eating disorder. That It feels often like you're losing the person that you loved. Are there any books or podcast episodes or any other resources out there that you could recommend to anyone listening struggling with an eating disorder and anyone listening wanting to help someone? Mm. Yes, but I would have to send them to you because I can't think of the name of the podcast correctly. Um, and probably a lot of books, but as soon as you said it, I have like 50 yeah, million yeah. books on my bookshelf. <laughs> Don't show. worry. Uh, <laughs> like you can just send me some and for everyone listening, just check the show notes because everything will be linked up there. So yeah, later, uh, just send them to me. Uh, but if something pops up, you, uh, just, uh, <laughs> you just tell me. Okay, good. Uh, all right, I just have... Um, Two more questions. So when I was doing some research about uh, eating disorders and about you, uh, I also saw that you have three very beautiful children. <laughs> and this just made me think of the following question. Social media is, well, with each generation more and more a part of of that generation their lives or at least it seems so and i'm not i'm definitely not saying that social media is is the only source why people you know uh have an eating disorder or something or that might make it harder but it, it definitely can be a contributor and i'm just wondering like as a parent how do you you know teach your children to not compare themselves to like the instagram models or you know anything else on social media it's interesting um, question, you, you know, for those people out there who are also thinking along the lines of, you know, just do eating disorders, are they affected? Uh, social media turns the volume up on any self-doubt we have, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? Yep. So if we have that lingering belief in the back of our mind that we're not good enough, and then we see someone with like a better something than us. <laughs> yeah. um, when it comes to body comparisons too, Uh, what you'll find is most people have something in particular on their, a part of their body that they hyper-focus on, right? And so then they'll compare to that particular part of another person. So if it's an arm or a nose, right? And so it's like, they're just turning the volume up without meaning to. Every time they look at social media, they're seeing examples of what they consider perfect. They're going, I'm not that, I'm not that, I'm not that. And that feeling of not enoughness goes up with it. So how do we teach our kids not to compare? Um, you know, my, I only have one child who's of an age that they would think about social media. He's a teenager and he doesn't have it. Because here's the thing, I can talk to him about not comparing. The effects of social media are so profound yep. that it is nearly impossible. It, it will is happen, nearly impossible right? for that to not somehow get into his mental state. And so for now it's, it's not in a discussion about comparison. I think that that is still so valuable though. It's not that we can't help our kids, right? We can help our kids. We want to help them be mentally and emotionally strong. And so we, we talk to our kids about, you know, their relationship with themselves, how they're feeling. We talk about your kids' strengths. You can talk about what they think are their weaknesses. You can be there as a support to listen and to help them understand, be aware of where they're potentially judging themselves because that's exactly where they're comparing, right? Um, Help your child to see that they are enough and remind them of that. You know, we can't take for granted that sometimes just hearing these things as a child is enough. Up until, um, you know, for some kids age nine, 
others age 12, what they are hearing of who they are in this world goes in their mind like, like a concrete black white belief. So if they are told by anyone, you're not good enough, that truly could just be it Boom, written. Kids also infer. So the beliefs that they have of themselves don't always come directly from the messages they received verbally. But if, um, unfortunately, in circumstances, research has shown of divorce, kids will feel like it was because of them. That's now, true. again, we can work with our kids and we right. can help them heal that belief that so, you know, they're that is not written for someone who has been in a divorce, but to, to know that, that it is that black and white for kids. So talking to our kids is so important, helping them understand their value and enoughness and that there actually isn't perfect. Mm-hmm. There actually isn't perfect. That's Unless true. we redefine perfect to be whatever <laughs> feels good for you without anxiety, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. is this enough for you? Do you, do you feel good? Perfect. Mm-hmm. You're doing your homework and you made a mistake and you cross it off, keep moving. That's perfect, you know? Um, So I I think that, you know, again, like helping our kids build an awareness of themselves that is healthy and balanced and how to cope. So the other piece around comparison and social media is talking about like, oh, is it hard to see that, you know? What's it feel like when you're, when you look at that, when you see that kid getting that award or when you see someone driving that fancy car, what is that like? What's that make you feel like, you know, helping them draw those connections. Like, oh, I actually do feel kind of crappy, you know? Okay. Okay. So what do we want to do with that? Because uh, again, going back to that podcast of yours, where it's like being aware of the fact that you have these thoughts is actually a superpower. It's not a bad thing. Very much. So, right. So being able to recognize that we do have difficult thoughts that we do compare because we're going to do it. The way our brains are built, unfortunately, is to identify problems constantly. Our amygdala is like a heat seeking device because it wanted us long, long ago to stay safe and alive. But now we find images on Instagram that are the problem. Yep. The problem is I'm not that I don't have that. Okay, well, that's good to be aware of that that feels like a problem, you know, that that feels awful today, that you feel sad or frustrated or agitated or less than. Um, So what do you want to do with that, right? Where do you want to direct your focus? What's something that you can take your face away from your phone and go outside and do instead and like recognize, oh, yeah, I actually can feel good in this moment if I'm here and I'm present because research shows. We feel best when we're doing whatever we're doing, honestly, even if we don't enjoy it that much, we're happier than when we go on social media. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's a good answer to a very difficult uh, question. Yeah. The last question that I have for you, Ashley, is there any, you know, question that I didn't ask that you hoped I would ask, or is there anything more Mm. that you just would like uh, to share about eating disorders? Or, I mean, if nothing comes up and you feel like we covered it to a degree, at least. I feel uh, like we've covered a lot. I feel like, mm-hmm. I feel like that's good. Okay. Um, I think that, you know, the only other thing that I want people to know is that change is possible and it's not, it doesn't need to be correlated with suffering mm. and that freedom from this. If you ask yourself deep down, like, do I, do I want to feel free? What do I really want to feel? That that thing that you want to feel is possible without these patterns. And to find someone who will help you grow that belief in the possibility and help you change the way that you feel in your life, in your body, um, in your relationship with yourself. Um, Because simply cracking open the belief in that possibility is one of the most important steps. Ashley. Um, thank you so much for this interview and for just, well, giving your time. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was wonderful. I do have one final end question uh, yeah. that I ask all my guests, and I would love to ask you uh, that question as well. Uh, but before I ask that question, what is the best place for listeners to, you know, connect with you? And is there anything that you're excited about that you would like them to check out? Yeah, you can find me at www.ashleymccann.com and McCann is M-C-H-A-N. 
there you'll find free resources for coping, um, journaling, some yoga and otherwise. Um, I am launching rounds of, of course, change your relationship with food, cool. which is aimed at people who are struggling with overeating and binging. Um, and that course will open in rounds. So if you miss one opening contact at any time to get in with the next group, I'm also offering EMDR retreats for people who feel like they really are ready to do that part of the work and take that journey. Um, and there will be more seasonal retreats that are not focused on trauma therapy, but that are for groups coming in the next year. So keep your eye out. Cool. Sign Very up for cool. the newsletter to find out when those will be coming around. Awesome. So all those things will be linked up in the show notes for everyone listening. The final end question, Ashley, and you know, take your time with it. You can make it as short or as long as you want. From everything that you've seen, experienced, lived and learned in your life, what is the one thing you know to be true? That we are all good enough. That we were born whole and complete and enough. And that in this life, I hope we all get back to that understanding. Thank you once again, Ashley, for, uh, for this interview. Thank you so much for having me, Alice. It was great. And there we are, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this episode with eating disorder and trauma specialist Ashley McKen. I hope you found this interview to be enlightening and, well, that you gained some key insights from it about eating disorders to either better be there for yourself or someone else. As always, to find all the resources mentioned in the interview, like the Vice documentary Ashley was in, any book recommendations and additional info on the topic of eating disorders, as well as ways to connect with Ashley, check out the show notes located in the description of this episode. Or you can of course always go directly to ipsproject.blog and search for Ashley to find them. With that, I thank you for being here and for learning more about this most important topic. If you enjoyed listening to the IPS podcast, don't forget to follow it on whichever platform you're listening to it right now. And I hope I can welcome you again on another episode and another journey here on the IPS podcast. This is your host, Elis Fass, signing off.